Welcome to Fast Frontiers. I am your host, Tim Shigel, managing partner of Refinery Ventures. In this episode, we're talking with Alex Frohmeyer, co-founder and CEO at Beam Dental in Columbus, Ohio. Beam Dental was founded in 2012 by three engineers at University of Louisville, who saw the opportunity to modernize the dental insurance industry by using technology. The first product was the Beam Brush, which was one of the earliest examples of the Internet of Things in healthcare. In this episode, we're going to go through the interesting path that these engineering students took to revolutionize the healthcare industry. The biggest theme or so what I hope you take away from this conversation, though, is the power of OKRs, Objectives and Key Results, a planning methodology first established at Intel and John Doerr took it into Google and it is widely used throughout Silicon Valley. But the important thing about OKRs is clearly stating your goals and intentions and making sure it relates to every single person in your organization so that you can articulate and reemphasize and restating and reminding everyone at all times what they're doing and why they're doing it. If you want a high performance team, you need to master the art of OKRs. Please enjoy my conversation with Alex Frohmeyer. Welcome, Alex Frohmeyer to Fast Frontiers. This is awesome. Great. Thanks for having me on. Great to be here. I'd love to start at the start, the origin story. We were just talking about Kentucky. And uh, so you grew up in Kentucky and went to University of Louisville uh, with a master's in engineering. And that is a great school, by the way. I mean, I went down there and toured very early into like 3D manufacturing and things like that. Just unbelievable. So yeah, yeah. Tell me a little bit about what, you know, how that start in engineering got you into this track of entrepreneurship. Yeah, it's, you know, Louisville was great to me and my co-founders, both of my co-founders, Alex Curry and Dan Dykes, we all met at the University of Louisville in their engineering program, which is called the Speed School of Engineering. The Midwest, and I think one of its unfair advantages is the density of and quality of engineering schools in the area. And I didn't really put together how unique that was because, of course, there are also some phenomenal coastal engineering programs, MIT, Stanford, et cetera. But just within a couple hundred mile radius, the schools that I looked at to go to for my engineering education included the University of Cincinnati, great engineering program, Purdue, one of the best, Rose Holman, one of the best, Louisville, Ohio State. Uh, there are some just phenomenal engineering programs to get that that kind of grounding in problem solving, learning how to learn, working your way methodically through problems and using math and science as the foundation. Louisville was really attractive to me because I wanted to be, of course, like as far away as possible from my parents. Uh, it's pretty typical for an 18-year-old, I think. But in an urban environment, and the University of Louisville's in uh, pretty close to downtown Louisville and is just in the midst of these phenomenal neighborhoods and a program that would allow me exposure to the outside world. And this is really what I think kind of accidentally kicked off all of uh, Beam's co-founders' interest in entrepreneurship. It's a It was a co-op program. It's baked into the yes. fabric of the engineering yeah. school. Just like Cincinnati. Get, Cincinnati has the same thing. And now yeah. it's in, in, in a very high quality version of it as well. And, and so bo- in both schools, you do three semesters of work in the field and you get paid real money to work at a real company doing a real job, a real engineering job. And I ended up working in uh, the construction industry for a general contractor. Um, one worked for an oil refinery and one worked in medical devices. And, and so even though we had very disparate industries that we were working for, we came back from our first semester 
you know, kind of with all this shiny new experience, I think having the exact opposite reaction that our uh, instructors and the program hoped we would have, I think what we were supposed to conclude is, oh, this is amazing. This is where I want to work. This is the job I want to get out of school. And instead, we came back and said, man, that was either insanely boring, or I now see that I'm probably going to be pretty successful in a traditional career path because I've met the people that are actually doing the job full-time and have 10 years of experience. And so now I'm wondering if I should actually do this or if I should do something much different and much different would be more risk. Yeah. And it's not an insult uh, at, at all, actually. I mean, like take, for example, one of, one of our co-founders, Dan, he worked at the Marathon Oil Refinery down in uh, Catlettsburg, Kentucky. It is a wonderful community. They're the largest employer by a mile in that in that world it's some of the most beautiful land anywhere in the world i think right in the kind of appalachian foothills along the ohio river wonderful people but if you want to do something highly differentiated and ambitious with your career the marathon oil refinery refinery is not it so it's naturally attracted people that when i think dan walked in the door and he met somebody who's a you know degreed engineer and and doing really well financially and has all this experience they weren't doing work that was particularly creative or uh, interesting to Dan. And so he rejected that culture, which was a great learning for him at 20 years old. And I was going through my own version of it at mm-hmm. the time. And that brought us, the three of us together, conspiring in the back of our classrooms on, well, let's let's try to build our own thing. And so instead of getting you know th- these big boy jobs when we graduated, is there another path? And what might that look like? Wow, that's pretty early. Well, you're hitting on something else that I that I come across often with either young folks I talk to, applied it to my kids uh, as well, or parents who are they're saying, hey, what advice would you give our kid as it relates to entrepreneurship in schools? I said, go learn something. Like getting an engineering degree, having a foundation, especially in the technology-oriented world we're in today, mm-hmm. I think that has so much more value. And you're a perfect example of somebody who you kind of studied the fundamentals, but you went off you know, and, and, and launched into an entrepreneurial thing. Cause you found out from a personality standpoint that kind of fit. Right. And you had this, this camaraderie with your, with your co-founders, which I, I think is just, you know, really great story. Yeah, that's exactly right. You know, I think, I do think that we are doing the entrepreneurship thing better, but still a bit backwards in uh, schools today. So I'm first of all, overall still very jealous that over the past 10, 15 years, it feels like Many schools have added exposure to entrepreneurship. However, it's still grounded in an academic, very safe environment. That is a little bit the antithesis, of course, of real entrepreneurship. And so I I still am more of the flavor, uh, more in favor of the flavor of entrepreneurship, which is go get the paper route, right? Go out and actually have real customers, not ones that are like the parents of your classmates in school, like you need to experience real customer acquisition and customer churn and, mm-hmm. and service and, and what it's like to actually build in the real world as early as possible, if that's your interest, or it, it can become something that you know, isn't your interest as well. But there is something a little bit still safe and protected about many of these like entrepreneur degrees and entrepreneur yeah. classes that exist in schools today. If you want to teach entrepreneurship, you would teach this one thing. At the end of the day, being an entrepreneur of a fast-growing company is about people, right? Leading, leading and managing and developing people and talent is, I would hazard a guess, your number one job. 
far and away, and there's no close second. Right. There's no yeah. close second. And this was a surprise to us. I mean, we're all three degreed engineers. And when we started Beam, I, I, I was actually the kind of least important of the three of us from our perspective collectively, because at the time we saw technical risk and technical challenge as the difference between success and failure. And only later was it super obvious. And this was once we started raising money and building teams and having a real business behind the product. Then you're like, oh man, now I get it. It really is all about the people. If you can attract talent, retain talent, develop talent, build teams, articulate goals, get everybody rowing in the same direction. If you can do that and you can do it at scale, you can build anything. You can do anything. And if you don't have that talent, you'll struggle to grow anything beyond a core group of people that resonate with a technical challenge or a particular project. Absolutely. Absolutely. Way more than just problem solving or coming up with solutions. It's getting people to all buy into a shared vision and objective and be able to execute against it. So, okay. So, so beam. So tell, so tell us the story about how that idea came together and what the inspiration was. Kicking off of where we had the thread earlier around these co-ops that we had gone on, we had established by, let's say our junior year at the latest in school that like our destiny was our own company. The problem was we, we weren't, we were working backwards from not working at the oil refinery and the construction company, we weren't working backwards from some amazing light bulb goes off product idea. Many, many entrepreneurs don't have this, right? And, and so I think we're good examples of like the journey was so interesting to us, much more interesting than what we were actually building. And so we ended up launching our own services business, engineering services uh, company when we were undergrads. And basically what we did is my job was uh, CEO uh, which was uh, admittedly a, a self-appointed title. My job was to schlep around Louisville, Kentucky, convincing people to pay us by the hour or on a per-project basis to do whatever. And I said yes to everything. Anybody that said yes to us, I said yes. But can you build a website? Absolutely, for sure. Uh, can you do this some technical writing? Uh, totally, uh, not not a problem. Can you do some CAD modeling? Absolutely. We got ourselves into so much stuff within about, a, you know, we did this for 18 months, two years as we were finishing up undergrad. We were running a full-time business alongside being full-time students for about two years, employing some of our friends on a part-time basis. And the three of us were all in from, you know, hours per week. And it was because we were, uh, I think, some combination of cheap and charming and uh, so a lot of people wanted to hire us for, you know, 10 bucks an hour, 25 bucks an hour or whatever to do some, you know, side R&D work that they couldn't prioritize in their business or uh, some sort of scope that they would have had to spend three, four, 10 times as much money to get otherwise. And we ended up accumulating skills at an incredibly rapid mm -hmm. pace. This would be in a lot of stuff that comes in really handy later when we decided to build an insurance company around regulatory, intellectual property, technical writing, mechanical design, custom electronics, and software. And this was time frame is like 09, 2011 through that range. So mobile is very new at the time. Uh, IoT is very new at the time. And so right. we ended up find, kind of carving out a niche in, in that arena. 
because nobody really knew how to do it. And we were willing to just act like we did uh, and then and then actually try to figure it out. And ultimately what happened is this really interesting living room-based company that we were building, which was still looking for a product, something we could really sink our teeth into and own ourselves, culminated or uh, overlapped perfectly with two other external forces. One was the passage of the Affordable Care Act, which had been like early 09, and then its subsequent kind of unrolling or implementation into the market kicked off a lot of conversations nationally about health equity, access to health insurance and access to health services, digitization of medical records and just the entire healthcare stack. And we found this really interesting. It was like for the first time we were interested in the market, which was what if healthcare and technology got together, you know, what what's going to happen here? And Fitbit was just getting going as well. It was one of the early right. IoT examples. And so we we kind of saw all these pieces starting to move in a direction that we found really interesting and very worthwhile as well. Healthcare is a very you know, noble pursuit from the perspective of being both uh, clearly valuable and important to society and, and its wellness. And then the other force was my sister getting into dental school. Uh, so she's a couple years ahead of me, graduated, went into dental school, met and married another dentist from her class who comes from <laughs> a family of dentists. I think all three of his brothers and his dad are all dentists. And uh, one of the other co-founders, his mom actually is a dental hygienist and had been her whole career. So all of a sudden we had these these wow. dental forces floating around, this healthcare tech thing that we were really interested in. And we were already running this business, accumulating all these skills. And so it was not obvious at all at the time, but of course now it looks super obvious that we just started, you know, just put all that in the cauldron, mix it up a little bit, and out pops a digital first dental insurance company. That, that process really took probably a full two years as it kind of baked and marinated in our brains and then became the beginning of Beam. Okay, that, that was one of the questions I want to ask you. Was the, was the insurance component of the business part of the original vision or was it you know, an IoT device? Yeah, uh, both, sounds both like is it, kind of the answer. Sounds like, yeah. Yeah, so here's, we were always, and I think this is one of the things that certainly I advise early stage entrepreneurs on today. And I think it's one of the things we got really right in the early days, unbeknownst to us. I think we accidentally got it right. We were working backwards from an outcome, from a belief about how a market should work and be shaped. And so the true north of the business from day one to still today is modernizing dental care and coverage. That's how we articulated internally and externally um, at Beam. And at the at the time, we would have said it differently, but it was always about access to dental care. There's 100 million people, now thankfully less, but still tens and tens of millions of people that don't have dental insurance today. And so they don't have affordable access to dental services when they need them or want them. Mm. And that was the true north of the business. How we went about solving that problem has changed a lot and transformed and pivoted and all these things. Mm -hmm. But when we started, it started around the hardware, which was the first uh, connected toothbrush, the idea was what if we could actually get data about daily dental hygiene routines and habits, and then bring that data back to your clinician, aka the dentist. And if you could bring that back to an insurance company, they would give you credit for it. That was, that was the big idea. Was So there was always connectivity to insurance. We didn't imagine building the insurance company ourselves day mm -hmm. one. We thought we could be a vendor to the major insurance companies 
and bring them this new stream of data that they could use in underwriting and they could use it to give their customers credit for exercising good habits that would obviously yield better dental health over time. So how much time how much time and effort did you spend trying to sell that idea to insurance companies? Too much. And so that was that was the thing, right? Was we again, we thought of ourselves as technologists and thought, you know, and had that, you know, build it and they will come attitude because we didn't know any better. This was us in the that. very early stages of learning. I see that so many times when people come up with a solution and a good solution to something, a technical solution to something, and mm-hmm. they and they they try to sell it to the incumbents, right? The current stack, right? They, they assume they can't build the whole stack. They have to go enable it. And they find that there's really not a whole lot of reason to catalyze the incumbent to do something like that, right? And so for those who are, you know, either had the resources or had the vision and, and the capabilities, going after the whole thing and doing the thing that's really transformational is where the real opportunity is and the, and the value. And that's exactly the view that we came to. And so as we, you know, faced denial after denial in insurance companies that we were trying to sell a solution to, I think we realized that two things needed to happen. One is we needed to find a a venture capital firm to partner with to give us the capital to be able to look further downfield than three weeks and, you know, where's our, where's lunch going to come from, right? Sure. Uh, so we had that scarcity mindset because we didn't have access to capital in Kentucky and we knew we knew had no connections, no family members that could help support us. And then the second thing we realized is we needed to just start thinking way bigger about this thing. And that really formed the idea that instead of being a vendor to the insurance companies, what if we built a dental insurance company from the ground up on a digital first chassis and made improvements to not mm. just underwriting data and this uh, application of IoT inside the dental industry, but what if we could also build a better way for employers to design dental benefits for their employees and a better customer service approach and a better service and experience approach and uh, unique uses of data to better understand risk and the actuarial component of the insurance product. And then we subsequently started learning and kind of banging through each of those modules, culminating in Beam in 2016, launching our first policies in the state of California that for the first time had a a user journey or a customer journey that was inherently digitally native, which is something we're now seeing playing out very successfully across pretty much every line of insurance. So uh, yeah, I'll get into that in terms of preventative care and outcomes here in a second. But just to summarize for folks, so you just closed your $80 million Series E round with Mercado Partners, right? In March. So total raise to date is? 160, I think. 160. Wow. wow. Yeah. And your first round was Drive. Drive led that first round, right? Back in 2013. And what, what kind of impact did that make at the time? And was this vision that you're describing, was that part of your pitch at that time? Yeah, actually, funny enough, I had to so drive drive capital themselves uh, based in Columbus. We were in, in Louisville uh, at the time, and drive was pretty much brand new. They were maybe nine right. months into their first fund. And so we had heard this rumor uh, that some people from Sequoia Capital had moved to Columbus, Ohio, what? And were investing in the Midwest. And and so we had kind of heard that this was happening, but we didn't, of course, know anyone there and, and didn't really have a reason to meet them. This was where the Kentucky Derby came in and saved my business. 
So the oh. uh, handful of business leaders in Louisville every year, of course, always, I mean, it is the, one of the world's great events is the Kentucky yeah, Derby. It and it's a great, great excuse to bring people into town that otherwise wouldn't. And so some business leaders in Kentucky had invited a couple of Drive Capital's partners to the Derby. And we found out about this through a couple of my seed investors and arranged for me to get a invite to a like a brunch event before the Derby where we knew they were going to be there. And so I did an elevator pitch with, you know, mimosa in hand at this, at, you know, some guy's house uh, before okay. the Kentucky Derby and everybody's all dressed up. And, you know, it's a very, it's not a business atmosphere, right? It's a very festive one. Uh-huh. And that, that pitch, which was literally probably an elevator's ride long because uh, that wasn't. That wasn't the main topic of the meeting. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, that turned into a an, an invite to come up to Columbus and kind of deliver the full pitch to the full partnership at, at Drive. And in that pitch, I had been trying to raise money unsuccessfully throughout the Midwest and where we could get our, our uh, claws into funds that did exist at the time. I had two decks. One was we're going to continue to do IoT stuff in dental, which keep in mind was not working. So this was kind mm-hmm. of like not my preferred pitch to give but it was the one that made sense you could draw you could kind of pull a string through what our company was and what i was suggesting Mm -hmm. that it would be in the future the other deck uh was one that i almost never took out in the meeting because it almost instantly shut down the conversation it was we want to build an insurance company and so every meeting i'd walk into i had to kind of choose which deck to pull up on the screen and i almost always took the iot deck because my experience with pulling out the insurance company deck was, sorry, we don't know anything about insurance. And by the way, that's not a venture investable business model. So, you know, so, sorry, uh, hopefully you can find the capital you're seeking elsewhere. IoT at the time, this is 2014, IoT at the time was actually pretty hot. It was emerging as a, as a real class of uh, startup. And so it would at least get you know, traction at a high level. For whatever reason, I chose to pull out the insurance deck uh, when I showed up at at Drive Capital, and I think we made it to the second slide, which was, you know, something along the lines of Beam is a digital first dental insurance company, and which of course we weren't. We wanted to be a digital first dental insurance company. Chris Olson, who's sat on Beam's board ever since, uh, and l- ended up leading the investment. He goes, whoa, 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 what did you just say? And I was like, shit, this is the moment, right, where I'm going to say it's it's an insurance company, and he's going to say, oh, this isn't venture backable, and we're not interested. And so I, and so I said, you know, Beam wants to build the first digitally native dental insurance company. And uh, Chris said, we've been looking, we built a thesis around insurance, and we've been looking for companies that want to build not just, you know, components of an insurance company, that's a software play. We want companies that want to take risk and actually build a full stack uh, insurance business. And so it ended up being then this, I don't think we made it to another slide in the deck. It ended up being this conversation about how we might go about that process. Because of course we were transforming the three of Mm -hmm. us from Mm -hmm. kind of hardware IOT guys into people that would know things about insurance. And of course early on we didn't. And so we moved the business in the early stages up to Columbus to leverage drives resources and a community here in Ohio. That's actually has a ton of phenomenal insurance companies, uh, some of which we now partner with, like Nationwide, that allowed us to access the talent and the know-how to actually build this thing into what it is today. 
That is a great story. A uh, lot of lessons in there for for our entrepreneurs that are listening. Uh, it's terrific. Real quick on the the subject of preventative care and outcomes. In terms of the industry, what kind of uphill battle is that? Like, you know, are you battling the the the, the current infrastructure, and and how is that as an upstart? Teams approach to preventative care has always been a unique commitment that we've made to our members. So what we've basically done is interwoven an insurance program with a wellness program. In health insurance, this has become pretty standard now. Any of the major health insurance companies have partnered with, in some cases, purchased or built their own wellness programs, but they're doing something with wellness. And the idea, of course, in health insurance is if we can get people eating better, if we can get them moving, if we can get them more actively managing chronic diseases like diabetes, that's going to abstract away very expensive claims over time. But the complexity, of course, in healthcare is extreme. Many people with phenomenal diets still have hereditary issues, and there, there's so many different ways things can still go wrong, uh, even despite best efforts. And, and we do think that's an important investment for the industry to continue to make. In dental, though, it's a much more like correlated one-to-one relationship. If you do mm. proactively and consistently take care of your teeth, that's brushing and flossing, it's the basics, you don't have to be that fancy about it. In fact, you don't need the world's most expensive toothbrush, though that does help. You don't need you know, to uh, have you know, incredibly elaborate and expensive tools and processes and coaches and all these coaches, things. Coaches, brushing coaches? Yeah, you, like, you don't need to go... If in general, you brush and floss routinely over a long period of time, you will have solid to good to great dental health and dental uh, and, and oral health over your lifetime. And your teeth will probably, you'll be able to keep most or all of your natural teeth for all or most of your lifetime. You won't have huge decay issues, gum disease issues, and all these other things. Mm-hmm. And so knowing that has actually made us more confident than. I think we otherwise would be about continuing to invest in dental wellness because of its simplicity. And you've, and you've seen the outcome. So you can see. That's exactly right. Right. And so now a few years on, we can demonstrate exactly what the value is in taking care of your teeth every day. We kind of know this from a clinical perspective, you know, uh, brushing your teeth yields fewer cavities than mm-hmm. population average. Mm-hmm. We've actually been able to take that a step further, which is, how that affects uh, claims that subsequently are filed in the context of an insurance product, how it affects your uh, health from a uh, preventive checkup at the dentist perspective, and then whether or not you need more intensive work subsequently. Mm -hmm. And we've been able to tie it out to a gamification model that actually saying brushing your teeth is fun now would be a bridge too far, but we can get a level of engagement Mm-hmm. and consistency of usage that mm. uh, the average toothbrush company would only dream about. And the reason why is because the connectivity of the brush allows us to reward members. So when you don't want to brush your teeth, uh, it's you know 2 a.m. and you're you know pulling yourself into bed. When you don't want to brush your teeth and you do anyway, you're making progress toward a reward from Beam. And that is now a hook to actually get that behavior loop sustained from a behavioral perspective it reminds me of you know early days of amazon right they they started with books 
because that was one of the clearest, easiest way to sell something online that you didn't have to see and touch beforehand. And you're entering the healthcare world in a very specific use case that you can manage and show outcomes. And then that has an opportunity to progress into many other things. That's a great analogy. The simplicity of the model really does resonate. And if you think about Beam actually has multiple customers. We distribute through our product through brokers. Companies are the purchaser of dental insurance. They're giving it to their employees as an employee benefit. And then there's the end member, the employee or a dependent in a, in a family for uh, the actual usage and consumption of the product. The difficulty there is how do you make a product resonate with three totally different audiences? And the way we've done it is everybody knows what a toothbrush is. It takes no explanation. It takes no special training. It takes no right. elaborate tutorial. When So when we explain it to a broker, they can actually take that message and translate it to an employer. And when we explain it to an employer, they understand the value of wellness in this context. And when we go to an end member, mm. they see the opportunity to get a high quality toothbrush and then toothpaste and floss and other dental care goods mm. Delivered right to their door without them having to go cut a check and buy a, a Sonicare or um, the other options available to them. So it's a the simplicity really does end up mattering a lot in adoption and then efficacy down the road. That is that simplicity idea is a great takeaway here for entrepreneurs because as you're describing, the rest of the business building is really really complicated, and the more simple and compelling you can make a proposition better likelihood you have of executing against it, all those the, the details of the execution and complexity of it, which kind of relates and takes me to then OKRs, right? Because OKRs, I love, and I work with all our startups on OKRs. I've used OKRs you know, for years and uh, it could be something else, but it happens to be a good, simple framework. And the important part of it is, and, and you've written about this and we want to dig in a little bit, is trying to get a group of people who are coming into a situation with different assumptions, different definitions. How do you expect them to execute in a complex environment well uh, when, when you have all those differences and they're not on the same page, right? So, so share with us how you've, when you started using OKRs and what you've learned about the power of, of them to help basically transform your people and your organization. I love it. The, I think OKRs are so, they've been so transformative for us, which I think is both a response to OKRs specifically, but I think multiple frameworks for this style of thinking can work for businesses. The first few years of being, we were small enough and simple enough that we had nothing. Um, if anybody needed anything, just like ask me, you know, or mm -hmm. ask a founder and, and the accessibility that we had and the culture that we had built around us was highly unified between the three of us. And so that consistency brought a lot of value and clarity to our early team. What was really interesting, and by the way, totally caught us off guard is at about 50 employees ish, we started seeing weird behaviors and assumptions being made in corners of the business that just totally surprised us. And, and they were antithetical to like the decision that I would have made. And it doesn't mean my decision's better. It's just, I didn't even know it was happening before the decision was made and we shipped the thing or we decided to do it in such and such a way. And that had never happened before. 
And so at first my inclination was, you know, the, the, you know, the, the person in question, they must be doing something wrong or they must not get it, or it's, it's probably definitely their fault. I think was my conclusion. <laughs> and what I learned, which took a long time was that it probably definitely was my fault. And what I hadn't done because I didn't know to do it was to set the company up to scale and be successful, especially as more and more foreign people to us were coming in as new beamers was we needed a framework in which to think, which was twofold, an articulation of what our culture and values actually were. Everyone else had classically just taken cues from the founders and how we acted right. as, as our values. But we needed to actually articulate them to the business and then emphasize them and then abide by them. And then second is we needed a decision-making framework to understand what the priorities of the company are mm. and in what order and where we wanted to allocate resources and those all important questions when you're growing a business, which is what is the definition of good enough? Where do we want to be better than the market? Where are we okay with being at the market? And maybe where are we okay with being behind the market? Where, where are we willing to set it down? Yeah, because at this stage, the biggest challenge is for a company is learning to say no to things. Right? Because exactly. you, can't, you can't do it all. And you got to figure out what's that one thing we can do that nobody else yeah. is going to do, our superpower, if you will, right? Yeah. So we started phase one of the business. We grew to about 50 people with all the cues culturally being taken with no formality from the founders. Phase two of the business was probably a three-year stretch up and through 18 or 24 months ago where more people were coming into the business and we were uh, starting to put framework into place and articulating a culture, but still strategy lived in this little pocket of the business. And then this new person is being trained a little bit differently than this new person in this other department. And everything's uneven, like everything's growing at a different rate. And we're trying to figure out just those questions around what, what is going poorly in the business that we need to fix? And what is going poorly in the business that we actually strategically need to not fix? And those were really difficult trade-offs that we were trying to make throughout that period. And then things have really sharpened up over the past two years. And the difference has been the introduction of OKRs into, into mm. Beam. And so what we, what we did, um, and OKRs is a, a construct from John Doerr at Kleiner Perkins, who's also um, an investor, not John Doerr, but Kleiner Perkins in mm -hmm. the business. And as, as they came into the business and as uh, we started really seeing the shortcomings of how ineffective our articulation of culture and goal setting was at the time, we discovered OKRs and instituted our first rev of, of objectives. And the value instantly of OKRs is it allows any company, any person, any department to say, what is my objective? That's the O. And then how am I going to get there? Those are the KRs. And the KRs are ideally very measurable and they can be moved around as the as you learn more about the business and as things as time unfolds so you can replace the krs whenever you want as long as you're still headed toward the objectives so you want the objectives to be immovable and the krs highly flexible and measurable along the way and we got it kind of right i would say like 50% there in our first year setting solid objectives 
and messing up a lot of the, the KRs uh, mm -hmm. that weren't as measurable as we wanted. We didn't have the mm -hmm. telemetry into the business to really be able to tell the difference between good and okay. And then I think our biggest insight over the past year has been the density and velocity of communication. And what I mean by that is I thought once we shipped OKRs and then we put them down on a piece of paper, like my job is done here. We killed it. Great job, guys. We have OKRs now. But what I learned is it takes every single day, every time I'm in front of the business, little pockets of the business, even a one-on-one, -on -one, all the way up to an all-hands meeting of articulating and re-emphasizing and restating and re-reminding everyone all the time in many different ways for our visual learners, for our touchy-feely learners, for all these different types of personalities in the business. It takes tons of repetition of what our objectives are, what we care about, a reaffirmation of our progress toward those goals, the measurable progress that we're making, and then the watchouts along the way that really bring everybody together. And I think this is true probably for the first time in our business's history. As we sit here today, I think I can pick a random hmm. beamer on our team yeah. and say, what are our cultural values? And they can spit them back at me. Mm -hmm. And I can say, what are our three core company objectives this year? And they can articulate them to me. And in what order of priority do we care about these? And they can they can tell me what order of priority they are. And that's an, an exercise I literally run. We do an all-hands meeting every month, and I pick a random person on the team, which is kind of like pretty high intensity. And in front of 250 other people, uh, that person is going to be asked those questions and can articulate that answer. And that's so much harder than I ever thought it would be to get to that point in the business's uh, ability to understand itself all the way through the organization. That's amazing. That That's such an important story for people to understand, entrepreneurs to understand that to get 200 people, to get 50 people to, to, to kind of go the same direction without this, it just seems impossible. And the flip side is my experience similar to yours. Once you have people on the same page, it's almost like there's nothing they can't do, right? You, you, you're transparent about the metrics. You know what you're trying to do. You've got the resources. Now you just, you, now you do it, right? And and exactly. you can win all day long as long as you're doing this, but it takes that concentrated effort to make sure that you've worked those things out and people know what they're doing and why they're doing it, why it's important. Humans' natural inclination is when they have information is to hold on to it and to use it selfishly, right? Mm -hmm. And their natural inclination is when bad things happen, hide it and try and fix it in the background before nobody notices. And when good things happen, tell everyone you've ever met in your life, <laughs> right? And making a culture safe for people to actually bring the bad news hmm. into the room first and loudest and ask for help and collaboration on a solution and to raise their hand and admit fault and mistakes were made along the way and then to teach the business what you learned so we uh, don't make that mistake again, but of course a new one will come along is... Uh, that's where we're at as a business right now. I think some uh, some folks in in uh, tech like uh, Netflix in particular, Spotify and others have built really, really intentional cultures around that exact concept where feedback can be shared in an honest and open manner, 
where mistakes are celebrated because it means the business is learning what not to do in the future or how to do things differently. And that people don't fear retribution or demotion or getting fired or getting in trouble by any number of definitions when bad things happen. And I think the founders at Beam, and I think founders probably in general, are so used to making mistakes and hearing no and things going wrong. I I thought everybody kind of was comfortable with kind of living in that like constantly failing, oh no, you know, imposter syndrome. And and it really is, uh, I've been shocked at how much kind of training and emphasis it's taken for us to take folks that have come from, you know, established legacy industry businesses, Mm -hmm. which of course, most Midwestern startups are hiring from big companies in the area. So I'm I'm sure everyone has this challenge. It's it's like shocking culturally when we're like, no, 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 for real, like, you screwed that up, right? And it's like, totally cool, because Mm -hmm. you're just going to tell us that you did. And then you're going to say, right? (laughs) Yeah. And, and, but it's, but it's cool, right? Like nothing happens at the end to you. It's not like a, a preamble to you being fired. Um, and then ironically, the people that do end up not making it at a company like Beam are the ones that were mm-hmm. hiding their mistakes and the ones that were acting like it was someone else's fault or saying that, oh, this wasn't my job. I couldn't be expected to do this or, you know, the company set me up to fail or whatever. It's the people that are the most vulnerable, the most honest, that are the ones that we that flourish and that we lean into and help mm-hmm. coach through their blind spots, et cetera. And that is such a inverted way of thinking relative to most people's entire careers when they yeah. come to be. No, I, I I love that you've lived through that. And it hits on something that we focused on and the key reason actually why we created refinery was an observation I had when I was in your shoes growing a company quickly and realizing that those those employees, if they hadn't been in the growth environment like this, they were probably a bit scared, right? Because it's a, managed, a bit of managed chaos. You're going to fail. All these things, it makes people uncomfortable. And until they get comfortable with it, and learn how to deal with it, they're just going to be afraid. They're going to pull back. They're not. And so you have to create that environment and atmosphere. And for those of us in the Midwest, employing those folks, we have to recognize that they, good likelihood, they did not come from one of those environments before. Right. And that's the, I think the fundamental way I tend to try to articulate to friends of mine who are running companies in, you know, the Bay areas and the New York's and Boston's of the, of the world you know, the Midwest has this great push and pull in, in talent. The huge advantage is that people are extremely loyal, incredibly high energy, very, you know, they have that win mentality, which I think comes from just like the kind of industrial grit backgrounds that many of our families, including mine, have, mm-hmm. you know, uh, agriculture, manufacturing. It's, you know, the getting to a good harvest is success, like nothing else matters. So everybody's very focused on it. And like achieving the goal is very focused in, in, in kind of that industrial mindset. So you get this incredible loyalty and focus on winning from people. And the disadvantage is just the lack of experience going through fast growth in particular, or a culture that rewards vulnerability and where mistakes can be celebrated and isn't just a, you know, exit out this door, please style approach from leadership. Mm -hmm. And so it's a much more egalitarian approach and it really is shocking uh, to people, but 
if you can if you can square the circle in the Midwest and you can accent that uh, loyalty and willingness to kind of humbly learn with that culture shock because they might have worked at a big bank or a big healthcare business or something previously, uh, then I think the Midwest can be the single best place, maybe in the world, certainly in the U.S., to build and scale a business. So that the intentionality of that culture building can really turn into a massive superpower over time. Love it. Love it. Bro, this has been incredible. I really, really enjoyed it. Thank you so much for your time. I have no doubt that Beam Dental is going to be a massive success given the groundwork that you've laid and the lessons that you've learned and that you've shared with everybody here today. So thank you very much. Well, it's much appreciated. Thanks for having me on. And thanks for what you're doing to help, you know, tell these stories and highlight all the great stuff happening in this region of the country. It's a really exciting time to be here and be doing the work that we're doing. Thanks. Thank you for listening to our third season of Fast Frontiers. We appreciate our listeners for your continued support through your emails, reviews, and sharing it with friends and colleagues. It reinforces for us why we put out Fast Frontiers. We continue to have an amazing time connecting with new and old friends to bring you great conversations about accelerating innovation in unexpected places. We are taking a pause over the summer months and we'll be back with season four in the fall. Thank you again. We will see you back here soon. The Fast Frontiers podcast is brought to you by Refinery Ventures. Our producer is Abby Fittis. Audio engineering by Astronomic Audio. Marketing, content, and social media support from Content Callout. And our podcast platform is Casted.